chapter 6, and we'll focus our attention on verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as ministers of God. So just for a few moments, we'll look at the subject, approving ourselves in all things. Paul continues to defend his integrity on behalf of the church at Corinth and because he's being criticized as a charlatan, as a man who is deceiver, a man who has no integrity. So in this position he finds himself in, a distasteful position, he needs to defend the integrity of the ministry in order to rescue the church at Corinth. So what he wants to do here in this verse is he wants to remove all obstacles that he himself would bring about in his ministry. And the positive side of that is then he wants to show the word approve there is the word he's been using in the Greek to mean commend. He's not trying to commend himself. He wants to show or to establish that his ministry is indeed from God. And he's going to look at the grace of God to do that and look at a list of hardships that he endured to do that. He is giving them somewhat to answer to those that glory in appearance and not in heart, 2 Corinthians 5, 12. So he's not commending himself. He is commending the ministry and trying to remove obstacles that would prevent someone from coming to Christ because of something Paul does. Now, this removing of offenses is not in the absolute sense because you know in the first epistle, Paul said that the gospel is an offense. It's a stumbling block to the Jew and to the Greeks' foolishness. But unto them which are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul knows that preaching the gospel means to some people it's going to be offensive, it's going to be a stumbling block like it was to the Jews. So for Paul to give no offense in anything that the ministry not be blamed doesn't mean he can remove all offenses, but he doesn't want he himself to be the cause of the stumbling block or the offense. He doesn't want to be the source of preventing like a hurdle from someone coming to the Lord because of something he is or something he does. So the question we ask then, what are the obstacles he wants to remove? Now, how do we apply this to ourselves as a church? We are not apostles, but we could ask ourselves. We could say, we don't want to do anything as a church that would give offense that the church would be blamed. But as a church, in all things, we want to approve ourselves as a church of God. And any church would want to do that, right? We want to show, establish, prove, that's the Greek word, that we are from God, we are of God, and we want to remove any obstacles that would get in the way that would somehow prevent people as they look at us, as they see us, in the context of a church that would be a stumbling block other than the gospel. Paul said in Galatians 5, If I preach circumcision and the offense of the cross has ceased, there's a way he could preach that would remove all offenses, but Paul understands that would be an error. So we just divide it in two sections. First, approving ourselves by the grace of God. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And then approving ourselves, as Paul did, in hardships, and he will give a list of hardships that he wants to use to remove obstacles and then to show 
that his ministry is of God. Verse 1, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Parenthesis, because he hath said, in an acceptive time I have heard thee, in a day of salvation I have succored thee. Paul interprets Isaiah 49, 8, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. And then verse 3, giving, participle. So how does verse 1 and 2 fit in verse 3? Now verse 1 can easily be misunderstood when we say we are workers together with God because it sounds like as partners with God, which is what the word means, God does so much of the work and contributes and we do the other part and contribute and together we are workers together with God. But Paul makes it very clear from the previous context, he's an ambassador of Christ. We then, we as a result, being ambassadors for Christ, which means what? Christ is the monarch. Christ establishes policy. Christ establishes everything that Paul is to say from the Word. And as an ambassador, he simply represents the Lord. He speaks on his behalf. He wants to act on behalf of Christ as he does what? works together with Christ. And the work of Christ through Paul is the work of grace. So Paul says, receive grace not in vain. So if we are to approve ourselves, if we are to show that our church is of God and from God, then we want to show ourselves as receivers of grace and we do not want to receive that grace in vain. Now how would we do that? The word vain means to waste it. Could you imagine wasting grace? It means to no purpose. So Paul again is appealing to a church that's already received grace, according to 1 Corinthians 1.5. He thanked God when he remembered the grace that was given to them, and they had all the spiritual gifts. So he's not appealing to a church that has not received grace, but he wants them to keep receiving it in such a way as ambassadors to remove offenses and to show Paul in particular, his ministry is from God, and we want to show that this church is established. It is a place of grace. Are you wasting the grace of God in your life if you're a believer? Is grace to no purpose in your life? Well, then we have to ask, what is the purpose of grace? Well, the purpose of grace is to save us, to sustain us, to preserve us, to cause us to persevere and finally bring us all the way to glory. But when Paul puts his finger on what he means in the first letter, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he would say, But I am what I am by the grace of God, and His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Paul didn't waste the grace of God. Paul didn't receive grace to no purpose in his life. So what does Paul say? But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. See, grace that brings salvation is also grace that brings about labor and service and fruit. So if there's no continuing fruit, if there's no service in the church of God, then we are wasting the grace of God that not only brings salvation, but brings the empowerment by the Holy Spirit that we labor, not as apostles. Not everyone is a preacher. 
but everyone as an ambassador and a servant to Jesus Christ. Are you laboring in the grace that you're receiving that empowers you to forgive as we heard, to serve in all the ways that the Bible tells us, to love one another as we are commanded? It's only by grace received, grace then is used, and grace labors. So Paul points to the grace of God and then tells the church not to receive that grace in vain, to no purpose, to no avail. Now, how did Paul do that? He said, grace was with me. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't labor. He clearly says, I labored. But then he says, it was not me, but grace was doing the labor in me so that when I was laboring, it was the labor and fruit of grace. Now, we don't need to cancel out Paul's labor and say somehow he really didn't do this. It was all grace. It was the grace of God, and it was Paul laboring. So I think what that means is everywhere Paul went in the Mediterranean basin, everywhere he traveled, every sermon he preached, every ship he got on, every hardship he endured, he was resting in a promise of grace. He was resting in something God had said to him and for him that empowered him to labor in such a way that he had to lose himself. He had to give up things. He had to count all things loss. He had to give up time and activities, all the things that we're required to wrestle with and to give up. If we're going to use life in service to God and one another, we've got to give up some things. So Paul saw the grace of God and the promises of God in such a way that everything God said, the many promises that he penned himself, were the means whereby Paul was able to continue to labor because God had promised to be something, to do something, and to give Paul something. So I think that's what Paul means when he says, yet not me, but the grace of God that was with me. It wasn't an experience. It wasn't just something that he felt, it was what God said to him. So grace is not vain or to no purpose when grace moves us to keep serving. But grace also is not wasted when it fulfills the purpose of bringing God glory, right? See, we would want to remove any offense that would cause this church to be blamed and somehow bring glory to the ministry or glory to us. We want to approve ourselves in all things, in whatever things and places we are, we want to show that this is a church where grace is in place. It's in place in our relationships, in our marriages, in our family, in our church life. That's what we want to show. And God gets the glory through grace because the whole point of grace is to the praise of the glory of His grace. So Peter would say in 1 Peter 4.10, as every man had received the gift, even so minister, serve, labor, the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace is diverse, and He's given you all gifts, and He expects that grace that comes to you in the form of a gift then would be used to minister the same one to another. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And so he then speaks of two categories of gifts. If any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. The oracles would be the Word of God. So we use the Word of God to speak. That's how the speaking gifts would use 
grace, to minister grace, and the gift of the grace of pastoral work or preaching. Then the second category, if any man minister, let him do it. The antecedent is the ministering or the serving as of the ability that God is giving so that God in all things would be what? Glorified. So the grace that comes in the form of gifts, particularly the gift of serving one another, and the gifts that are empowered by grace through faith, are used in such a way that when we minister, we are doing it in the power, in the strength, or the ability that God is giving so that God would be what? Glorified in everything. So we want the world to see this is a church where grace is in place, and so when people minister and serve and preach and labor with each other, what they're seeing is the grace is being used And then grace is giving glory to God the Father. Now, how would you serve in the grace that God is supplying you? Again, it's not a feeling. It's How would you put your finger on that? Say, Well, I think I did that in the grace that He supplied, but in this case, maybe I didn't. Well, we take it again back to what God has said to us, right? What has He promised us? How do I know I'm laboring and ministering in the strength that He supplied? Well, I start with the Word. We speak the Word. We preach the Word. We exhort with the Word. We want to expose the Word, expound the Word, and reveal the Word in preaching. But then through that Word now, the promises that God have given us, then we minister in the ability that comes by resting in a promise that God says, when you give up your time, when you give up life, When you count all things loss to serve and labor, because you will have to do that to some measure, you will have to lose your life that you may save it. There's a promise that God says you're not losing when you do this. Grace is going to bring the promises to us as we know them and think about them in such a way that it empowers us in that ability of God's grace coming through the Word to free us to labor when the flesh says, I don't want to do that. That block of time this week that I've got, I want it all for me. I want me time, I want phone time, I want activity time, I want leisure time, I want Sunday time. I give a little bit, but the rest is for me. Then there's no labor. Grace in your life is vain. It's just a waste It's of no avail, it's to no purpose, unless it's empowering service because we're resting in promises. And then secondly, I think Peter would allude to the fact that when we come to the Word as newborn babes, chapter 2, desire the sincere milk of the Word, we start growing thereby, and then we taste the grace of God, and then we come to Christ. And now how are we coming to Christ by tasting grace? And how are we tasting grace By the word of grace. And what's in the word of grace? The promises of grace. God's gracious promises that come to us freely in Christ. No merit, no work, no contribution. In Christ, He has saved you by His grace. And now in Christ, He's brought to you promises that He most assuredly will fulfill. There's no question.
Only as Paul did and we do can we be a church that's removing offenses as Paul did because he received the grace of God not in vain, which means what? That sounds kind of boastful, doesn't it? But how did he receive that grace? He was weak, he was bankrupt, he was poor, and he was nothing. That's not too exalting, is it? He just was a big zero before God. And in that position, grace empowered him. And it was not in vain. Now look at the reason he says in verse 2, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How is it that we have grace to serve? How is it that grace can cause us to serve in such a way that we are showing, as Paul did, his ministries from God, or that we're showing, removing offenses and showing that this church is not a product of man's work, it's of God. Because of Isaiah 49, verse 8. This is a messianic prophecy. The one that God is hearing is Christ, and the day the one that God is helping is Christ. And so Paul takes this messianic prophecy, which the immediate fulfillment is Israel, but the prefiguring, as Paul applies, is the coming of Christ. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. And the day of grace does not go on forever. It's just you die or the Lord comes back. So he appeals to the church that's received grace to keep resting in it, to keep receiving it by faith, And not to receive grace in vain because Jesus has brought the day of grace to us. Jesus has brought to this church and any ministry that is of God the day, the accepted time. Now if you look back at Isaiah 49, what the writer continues to say when it refers to this messianic prophecy, it says, now is the accepted time, or or rather... I'm going to turn there. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard thee, in a day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, Show yourselves. Jesus cannot simply let prisoners go free and say, go free, unless God's name is vindicated and justice is served. I mentioned to you that I was going to have a meeting with a couple of Muslims this past Monday, which I did. Thank you for your prayers. One is the name of Ali, the other name Sharif, his brother. As we began to talk about Christianity and the, and the Muslim faith, Their idea of forgiveness was that Allah is merciful, and if you're sorry, then His mercy outweighs justice. In other words, He just kind of overlooks the justice thing for the sake of mercy. So I said, so you've got one man that committed all this sin, and he's not sorry, and the Christian faith also believes in repentance, the sorrow according to God. He's not sorry. He goes to hell, right? Yeah, yeah, we believe that. Well, here's this other man. He's done all the same sin, exactly, but he's sorry. He's off the hook. That's right. I said, what about justice? How is that right? Would that be right if a man killed your wife or your mother 
And they went and said, I'm sorry for what I did. Okay, they're genuine. They really are sorry. And the judge says, go home. You're free. Is that right? No, that's not right. You know that's not a good judge. Your own sense of justice. It was a bit baffling to at least one of the brothers. He tried to figure out how to make that work. I said, what if there was a way in which God could be merciful and just in the same person? I said, that's the Christian gospel. Christ cannot let anyone go free unless justice is served. He was given for a covenant. He just didn't bring a covenant. He is the covenant. For He bore the wrath of God on our behalf for the justice of God. And then the mercy of God comes into the courtroom and says, arrest that man and let him go free. How? Because justice has been served. He bore the wrath on our behalf. So Christ is a covenant so that He can say to the prisoner, Go forth, and to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. Now in Isaiah 42, 6, He opens the eyes of the blind and sets the prisoner free. But in Isaiah 48, 9, He says, Show yourself. And I think the connection is this, and we'll relate it to our text. We are first having our eyes open so we may see our own sin and we see the person who bore that wrath on our behalf and gives us His righteousness. We see it by faith. But then secondly, in a parallel text, Jesus says, show yourself. Because when you see light, the light of the knowledge of God and the person of Jesus Christ we learned, you become light. Show yourselves. What do you show? They shall feed in the way, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. So they're going from Babylon to Israel. It's it's a treacherous journey. It's a long way. There will be heat, and the sunshine will be bright, but it won't destroy them. It'll smite them, but not so as to destroy them. They'll be hungry and they'll be thirsty, but they'll not hunger and thirst because the mercy of God will bring them to springs of water. So grace and mercy in the immediate fulfillment is pointing to the grace and mercy of God in the prefiguring of Christ as we approve ourselves or show ourselves as a church of God or as Paul shows himself as a minister of God How then does He show the mercy of grace of God that's not being used in vain, He labors, but secondly, as He says in our text, He endures hardships. Look at this. But in all things, approving ourselves as the minister of God in much patience. Now Paul goes through a list of hardships. And this is a canopy over all of it. Endurance. Endurance. Paul demonstrates, Paul is removing offenses or stumbling blocks or obstacles to his ministry by his endurance. And at the same breath, he is showing himself to be a minister of God. Now, what is the obstacle he's trying to remove in particular? In much patience, in what? Afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings. 
That list is a, a triplet of threes. The first afflictions are general hardships. The second one, hardships imposed by men. The third one, hardships he imposes on himself. There's some order to his list. How, what is Paul trying to remove? What particular offense is he trying to remove so that the ministry be not blamed and he's approving himself as a minister of God? It is this, beloved. He doesn't want anybody to think that he's a Christian or an apostle for the money, the praise, and the glory of men because that's exactly why the false prophets were glorying in appearances. How does Paul remove that offense? Why is that a stumbling block? Because when people are converted through health and wealth, they're not coming to Christ. And if we present as a church that everything's wonderful as a Christian, you just get rich and you get happy and things go well, that's a stumbling block. Because you're moving people away from Christ and to the very thing that the world already knows. They know that. They know the pursuit of wealth. They know what it means to try to have happy days. If we're the kind of church that's just going to present a lifestyle of of a happiness that you get by coming to Christ and problems go away, and things go well, and yes, you may go through a few trials, but at the end of them, things get better. When did Paul's hardships ever bring, at the end of them, a better life, as we define it? Never. He never got the gold at the end of the rainbow. He never went through the trial, and it got better for him, physically, outwardly, and in the world's possessions. Ever! And it didn't for Christ. So we are a stumbling block if we're a church that presents the gospel in such a way that we're bringing people to something other than Christ. And so Paul says he is approving himself as a minister in his endurance of great hardships. And that demonstrates that Paul's ministry is of God because what sustains him? Same thing as Isaiah 49. The mercy of God and the grace of God is keeping him It's leading him. It's guiding him. It's bringing him to pastures and high places. He's being fed on the way. He's been given the bread of life and the waters from the Word of God. Spiritually, Paul is sustained and therefore Paul approves himself in much affliction, necessities, and hardships. And then in verse 6 and 7, and I'll have to close here, The next group is is in his integrity, his purity. He says in verse 6, By knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. The next group of eight, he gives two pairs of eight. Not two pairs, two Two sections of eight. And he now speaks of his, his purity, his integrity. Something about his character. Now what keeps Paul going as a man of long-suffering and kindness in much hardships? The grace of God or by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is at the center 
of those eight things. And so in one way, the Holy Ghost is empowering Paul's purity, his knowledge, his long-suffering slowness to avenge wrongs, and his kindness. Not just not avenging yourself, but then turning around to the same person doing what? Doing an act of kindness to the very person who did something wrong to you. Where does that come from? The Holy Ghost. What is Paul saying? His integrity in hardships... Beloved, our integrity, our ability to keep suffering long with each other, to be kind to one another by the Holy Ghost, is a demonstration that God is with us because nobody endures that by nature, do they? Is that who you are by nature? That you just don't get people back, you don't bring back a word that they brought to you, 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 are, you return kindness? No, we're not like that. So in much affliction and hardship, he approves himself to be a minister of God. He removes obstacles and he establishes that grace is sustaining him. And he establishes that through his own character. In other words, he keeps on serving in the hardships. And then lastly, he gives seven or eight paradoxes to finish it out. And I'll just read these. Beginning in verse 9. He's used the word in, by, and now as in verse 9. Prepositions. As unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Now it may seem that Paul is trying to correct misunderstandings about what people are saying about Christianity, but he's not. These things are in part true, aren't they? So from the human level, people see us this way, and they see Paul this way. But at the divine level, the counter, the paradox, is something totally different. So it is true, we are unknown. We're just a small band of people that nobody knows on the planet, yet very well known by God, right? We are dying. We die to self daily, but behold, we are living, and we will live in Christ one day at the resurrection. We are chastened. God uses calamities to chasten us and train us, but we're not killed. And we won't be until God gets finished with us. We are sorrowful. We are weighted down with the sorrows of this world and the sorrows of seeing loved ones who are not turning to Christ. Great sorrows, yet always rejoicing in Christ. We are as poor. Paul was not in the ministry to get rich. He wasn't in it for the money. He was a poor man, yet his aim was to make many rich through the gospel. As having nothing which we've counted all things but loss, there is a sense in which we have nothing. We've let it all go. Even what we still own, we are to count it as dumb and loss and open our hands. Yet what? Possessing all things. All things are yours, Paul says. Whether it's Paul, Cephas, Apollos, things present, things to come, life, death, all things are yours Because you are Christ, and Christ is God. So Paul shows through the patience and the purity, through the Holy Spirit, and the paradoxes of Christianity, that he removes the offenses, that somehow he's an apostle for the glory of man, for the praise of man, or from the money he can get from man. How do we know that? His afflictions and his hardships, because grace sustains him. Grace keeps purifying as he rests in grace. 
And grace presents certain paradoxes to the world, but we know we possess all things. Let us be a church then that receives grace and tries to remove offenses that would hinder anyone from receiving the gospel, whether that be hindrances that we ourselves bring about in our actions because we are inconsistent with what we say, which is a struggle for all of us, or obstacles that would present to the world a false view of Christianity. And how do we do that? When we are in hardships, we are sorrowful, we are hurting, we are experiencing trouble, but we are always rejoicing in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us today. Help us to be forgiving because you've forgiven us. Bless us, as Paul said, for love's sake that we would be forgiving one another. And Lord, bless us not to be offensive in a way that we shouldn't be with our lives and with the gospel we speak to one another. Help us to remove any obstacles that would point people in the wrong direction as to what Christianity means or be an obstacle or hurdle that would prevent them because of something we say, something we do, a way that we're consistently living that would say to them, who needs Christ? I already have what you have. May we rest in your grace in such a way that it causes us to labor and to endure hardships and brings about greater purity and that we recognize the paradoxes of the Christian life will mean that we look a certain way to the world, and in part it is true. But from the divine perspective, we possess all things. We live. We are well known because you've known us forever. We are loved because you've placed your love upon us. We are not killed even though we are chastened. And Lord, sometimes we are slandered and sometimes we are not. Help us to remember through these paradoxes that grace is what sustains us and grace is what we want to display so that the world may see that we are a church of God only by the grace of God and for the glory of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.